So we are in week two of a series that we're calling Heavy Lifting, uh, doing discipleship in difficult areas, right? Like, I think a lot of times in 2022, uh, we were talking, uh, Kim Kyle and I were talking about this morning, like, we can get so, um, we can get, as the, as the church living in a culture where we're kind of on the edges, we can get so concerned about kind of hanging on to our own that we end up just feeding people, uh, like putting the cookies on the lowest shelf all the time and never asking people to believe hard things and do hard things and be part of doing difficult things for the glory of Jesus, not because God wants to use us or because God even needs us per se, but because we deeply believe that God wants to do some things in us, with us, for us, and through us. And so in this series, we're talking about discipleship in uh, difficult areas. And the truth is, like we said last week, I think we have a slide for this, we can do heavy lifting in discipleship because Jesus has done the heavy lifting of salvation. All the hard stuff God is, has already done for us. Like Jesus has given us his power. Jesus has offered us promises like we just sang about that he will fulfill. He keeps his word. Jesus has given us all we need to be the people collectively and individually that he's called us to be. Now, as we get going to that, let me tell you, I used to love the fair, rough transition. Uh, but now as a parent, I hate the fair. Uh, how many of you like the fair? Anybody? A couple of fair people? Like, I saw a couple of you start to raise your hand. You put it down. peer pressure. Uh, Yeah, it's okay to admit you like the fair. One time a year, I actually like the fair. Like, I like fried dough. Anybody like fried dough? I love any food that comes on sticks. I wish more of our food came on sticks. Uh, Life would just be better if our food uh, came on sticks. I love, I, I used to love, I don't love it as much anymore, but I do still sort of love the bumper cars. Uh, nothing like taking a loved one into a metal arena and smashing a car into them uh, to say you love them. So I do actually still love those. I like the Ferris wheel a lot, but I like like proper Ferris wheels. Like I like the Ferris wheel at the fair until I get to the top and I look down and I see the person who probably assembled the Ferris wheel and, uh, and they, they don't look like they got an engineering degree from MIT. And then I get a little nervous about the Ferris wheel personally, but I like the Ferris wheel despite seeing its operators. My favorite though is probably the fun house. Anybody like the fun houses? Like, I like the floors that kind of shift. I love doing that and watching people embarrass themselves falling down. Like, I'm so uncoordinated as a general principal that, like, in that shifting floor part, I have to hold the rails because I'm not going to embarrass myself. I love watching confident people uh, embarrass themselves. I love the spinning floor part. It's kind of like riding the green line. You know, that part in the green line. Like, I love a fun house that has uh, that. And I even love those distorted mirrors. You know those mirrors where it's like, okay, now I'm shaped like, uh, like this. And then in this one, my head is huge. And in this one, my legs are huge. Like, I love those distorted mirrors. And at, at night, I leave the fair and I go, man, I'm glad I did that. Like, I'm a lot lighter in the pocket for doing that. But my kids are happy. But I also go, I don't have to do that again for another year. Like, as, uh, in the town that I grew up in, there's a fair that comes every year. And like, we know people who buy the two-week pass and will go every day. I'm like, how? Like, I can eat meat on a stick every day for two weeks, but all the stuff that comes with it other than that, like, how do you do that every day for two weeks? Like, I don't need that food. I don't need that expense. I don't even need that experience uh, that often. But there's one part of that sort of fair experience that a lot of us, including me, live with way too comfortably. And it's that distorted mirror thing. 
but it's not like an external distorted mirror. What I've learned is there's an internal distorted mirror when it comes to our thinking sometimes, where we think we're seeing things one way, we think we're seeing them the proper way, but we're not actually seeing them correctly. Like um, so often our mind uh, will the way that our, our thinking because of how we were raised or living in a broken world or just our own sinful patterns, so often we begin to see the world one way that we think is the right way and it's not. It's a distorted way of thinking. And I want to talk with us today about having a gospel worldview and taking captive our thoughts. And, and like thinking gospelly is heavy lifting. I will tell you the truth, probably one of the five hardest things I've ever um, that the Lord's ever brought me to in my discipleship journey was a moment in my life where I had to begin to stop thinking with distorted mirrors about uh, Christ and about myself and about how God was going to operate in my life. And so having a gospel worldview, just knowing Bible verses and worship songs is not enough. Like it is not enough to make it in this world and follow Christ. We have to see God and the world and even others and ourselves and events with God's perspective. I'll tell you the truth. I appreciate Juliana's prayer because there came a moment this week where I just said, I cannot read the news anymore. I just can't. Not because the news is not sad, but because the people interpreting the news for me do not see with a gospel lens. And I needed to just sit with the brokenness of our world but I need to do it with a gospel lens and not just with some news agency or newspaper trying to interpret it for me, right? Like part of thinking gospelly is beginning to see things from God's perspective, not just the way our brains, the distorted way our brains or our hearts or our upbringing or the news or the, you know, social media would interpret those things for us. So we're going to talk today about taking our thoughts captive, um, and, we're, and uh, you know, for me, like, there have been great moments in my life where I saw that I was not thinking about life and myself and the gospel like Jesus did. And the Lord had to tear some of those things down. So I would ask you getting started, like, are there any place where you have any wrong or unwelcome thoughts? Because there have been some patterns in my life that were not just wrong, but, they, but it's like they were there and I didn't even want them there. They were there and they were unwelcome. So do you have any thought patterns and thinking patterns in your life that you've welcomed? And do you have any others that you have not welcomed that just seem to be there? Today we're going to look at the church at Corinth. And, uh, and man, they had some messed up thinking. And so we're going to look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 verses. Scott, do we have up 3, 4, and 5 or just 4 and 5? I think we just put up 4 and 5, right? I'm sorry I did that to you, Scott. Scott used to run the projector, I think, long before Nick was here. And uh, man, okay, perfect, four. Thank you. Um, I may read to you verse three. I'm so grateful for Scott. I was thinking about him this morning, like been with us from day one. Renee's been with us from day one. I was thinking that very first Sunday that we ever met as a church was at the Harvard Kent. It was five and a half years ago now. Uh, It was zero degrees when we started with a wind chill of minus 27. We're like, what a a great day of weather to start a church in Boston. Zero degrees. This is wonderful. We were literally unloading the U-Haul that morning and I was straining and beginning to sweat and my sweat was freezing on my forehead like as we were unloading it. So I'm thankful that despite that and everything else, you guys are still here. So here we go. Sorry, that was sideways. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10. I'm going to read verse 3, and then we'll get into 4, which you've got up here. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to obey Christ. Now, whenever I hear the Bible talk about war, I know that I think about times in Christian history where Christians actually fought wars in the name of God. And I hope that we all are at a place where we go, anytime that God's people try to assert power over other people, that is not where the heart of Jesus is. The way of Jesus is gentle and lowly. And we ought to find ourselves at that place. So when Paul here talks about war and warfare and weapons, he's not talking about political weapons. What he's talking about is combating wrong thinking and wrong believing in the church at Corinth. If you want to see, I share this all the time, anytime we bring up Corinthians, if you want to see the most messed up church of maybe all time, at least in the Bible, go read 1 Corinthians. Like they're getting drunk at the communion table. A guy is uh, in a sexual relationship with his stepmom and the church is applauding it and saying, good job, dude, that's awesome. Uh, they're just mean-spirited to, want to, the, to the marginalized people in their church. They are not good people. By 2 Corinthians, they've straightened some of this out, but it's still not perfect. And Paul is saying, we're going to wage war on the wrong thinking here. We're going to fight the wrong thinking. So he says in verse 4, there's a, this is a spiritual battle that needs a spiritual battle plan and spiritual weapons. And I want to tell you something I have to tell myself all the time about how I think and how I live in this world. Jesus has won the war. Jesus has won all the wars. The war over sin has been won. Jesus won. He is Christ the victor. And so we fight from victory as Christians, not for victory. When we want to take captive our thoughts or we want to see God do something in and among us, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. We're literally, the Bible says, walking in the victory parade of Jesus. We fight from victory. The second thing I would tell you this morning about this battle, most of our battles are going to start in the mind and the heart before they ever become visible. Most of the battles in our hearts, uh, in our lives, start in our hearts and in our minds before they ever become visible. You know, I, I, in my family, we've got a lot of folks who have struggled with our weight and self-image. That was a huge one for me uh, at one point in, in my life. I know that the battle for finances begins in our hearts and minds before it becomes visible. Relationships and purity, these are heart and mind battles before they're ever extraled. The mouth and words, we're going to do a sermon series maybe later this year or, or, or uh, next year called Me and My Big Mouth. I don't know how many of you struggle with like taming the tongue at times. But that's a heart thing and a mind thing before it's ever a words thing. Most of these battles, our emotions, our worldviews, all our isms are battles in the heart and the mind before they're visible. Uh, and so then I would tell you, we ought to ask, whenever any thought is coming in, who authored this thought? Who authored this thought? What does Jesus think about this thought? And left alone, where is this thought going to take me? This feeling toward this person or toward myself or toward the world or this thought or this idea or this conviction or this belief. If I leave this thing alone, if I plant this thing in the ground of my heart or my mind, when it grows, what is it going to produce? 
These are questions when Paul is talking about a spiritual battle, needing a spiritual battle plan and weapons that we need to think through. Paul's not here commanding us. This is really important when he says, we take captive every thought, we destroy all these arguments against God. He's not commanding this. He's giving a battle plan to combat wrong thinking and wrong feeling and wrong believing at a specific church. But this can be applied. Learning to demolish arguments and take captive thoughts and submit them to Jesus is something we don't have to do. It's not commanded. We get to do it. We can do it. And right here in verse 5, he's going to give us a plan for it. And it's a threefold plan. And here it is. One, he says, I think we have the slide up for this. We're going to destroy arguments and lofty ideas that are against Christ. We're going to destroy them. We're going to demolish the stronghold. It's going to be the first thing he says to the church at Corinth. When we get there, when we find ideas that are set up against knowing God, we're going to destroy the castle. We're going to demolish those. Second thing, he says, we're going to take captive the rebels. Every thought that comes out of the stronghold, we're going to take those captive. So we're going to demolish the arguments, the big picture. Then we're going to take captive... The, little, the, the criminals, the little thoughts. And then third, we're going to make them obedient to Christ. We're going to set a new commander up in the castle. And we're going to make every thought, every idea, every feeling, every belief be obedient to him. There's a new king, a new commander. Now, where this played out for me, there were two, um, you know, I look back at it now at 44. And I go, it really wasn't that traumatic. But my parents divorced when I was four. And I kind of grew up in the wake of feeling very insecure because my dad wasn't around. It's not an excuse, it just is what it is. When I was nine years old, a girl, I can still remember her name to this day, named Stephanie Hamner, said something about how I looked that was deeply wounding. I can still remember exactly where I was standing in Russell Elementary School in the fourth grade when she said it to me. Fast forward three years and David Tyre at a church camp, I can still tell you at Cohutta Springs in Calhoun, Georgia, exactly where I was standing when he said it, David Tyre attacked my appearance. And those two statements, one attacked how I looked, one attacked what I weighed. And as a teenage kid who was super insecure, I knew I couldn't really do anything about this one, but I could do something about this one. And so I became super sensitive about what I weighed and how I looked. Fast forward five more years, I move off to the University of Georgia. Um, For the first time in my life, away from my church, away from my family, away from the people who could speak truth into those negative voices, and those negative voices took deep root in my heart. And there was a season in my life where, uh, I'll be honest, like I was literally starving myself because I thought, I can't control what I look like, but I can control this one thing, and it felt like control so that I could be lovable and acceptable. And I remember talking with my roommates, Jeremy Wicker and Brad Giddens, two really godly guys, and I loved Jesus. And they were like, you are not all right. The way you are seeing yourself in the world is a distorted mirror. You're not okay, and you need help. And so I I met with my college pastor. His name was Doug Nix at Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia. The man is literally like on my Mount Rushmore of heroes. He saved my life. And he said, if you're willing to, I'll meet with you every two weeks for the next few months. And we'll talk through why you think like you think. Why your thinking is causing you to behave like you're behaving. And how the Lord wants you to think and behave. 
And out of that, Doug shared this verse with me, and he walked through this battle plan that I want to walk through with you today. First, we have to destroy or demolish or annihilate anti-gospel thinking. We see this in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We destroy it. We destroy it. There's a few things that we've got to do here in this. And I, I think I will encourage you to write these down if you're taking notes. One, we have to accept responsibility for how we think. The stronghold of thinking is is. We're responsible for it, right? Like, our, not our family, not our environment, not our friends. It wasn't Stephanie Hamner or David Tyre that caused me to begin to think like that. It was my thinking. It was me improperly interpreting a couple of events that happened to me and letting them shape me. But it was my responsibility. We've got to own our ungospeled thinking. We're responsible. We live in a pass-the-buck generation. It goes all the way back, though, to Adam and Eve. When God comes to Adam and Eve, he says, Adam, why'd you eat the fruit? The woman made me do it. Woman, why'd you eat the fruit? The, the snake made me do it. We, we literally have in our sinful DNA the DNA of passing the buck. But we have to, as God's people, Christians, own our issues. And we've got to demolish this, it's someone else's fault mentality. If there's any sense of it, it's someone else's fault, we have to demolish that and accept responsibility. The second thing we've got to demolish is this uh, understanding. We've got to understand that garbage in means garbage around means garbage out. Juliana just prayed about this. Garbage in means garbage around. When I, if I allow garbage into my mind and into my heart, then it means there's garbage swimming around in my heart and mind and then garbage will flow out of my heart and mind. Listen, if I watch the Food Network, I've, it's, it's so beautiful sometimes. I'm like, oh, cook that steak. Yes, make that baked potato. Oh, that cake. Mm. Like it's, I, I'm so, I get hungry watching the Food Network. If I watch HGTV, I want to buy a second home or I want to update my house. Nothing like watching someone update their house to make you discontent with your house. If I, want, if I watch the travel channel, immediately I think I got to take a vacation. Um, if I look at Instagram, I wonder why can't my life be perfect like so-and-so's life? Why can't we live like someone else? If I uh, surround myself with negativity or sexuality or materialism, uh, just like visual McDonald's. You know when you eat McDonald's, always seems like a great decision going in. And then like some of you are like, it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm telling you, those French fries, God bless them. They're the best going in. They're the worst when you find them under the seat of your car a year later and they look the exact same. Not sure what's going on there. But like going in, those French fries are so good. Like if we constantly are consuming spiritual McDonald's, we cannot be shocked when we develop heart, spiritual heartburn later on. Garbage in, garbage around, garbage out. It will swirl around. We've got to demolish gospel or garbage in with no effect sort of thinking. Let me read to you Psalm 103, or excuse me, 101 verse 3. Uh, the psalmist says, I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. Is there anything that you are seeing that's worthless? Uh, I hate the work of those who fall away. It will not cling to me. I will not let the work of people who hate the Lord cling to me, the psalmist says. We've got to demolish this garbage in, no effect thinking. I'll be honest, like we don't watch rated R movies in my house. That's not a standard for you. It's just I struggle with anger, so I don't need to hear swearing. 
I'm scared to see blood and I definitely don't need to see anyone naked. I just, that's garbage for me. I don't need to see it. So that's a standard that I've had to, we've had to build into our home. Because if I allow garbage in, the garbage will swirl around in my heart and mind and eventually it will come out. The third argument that we've got to destroy or stronghold we've got to destroy and demolish is the idea that my heart, that my, that my behavior, if my behavior changes, then my heart and mind will follow. When the truth is, the gospel idea is that my heart and mind always drive my behavior. What I believe determines how I behave. So if you struggle with spending, cutting up your credit card is not going to stop your spending problem. It's a heart problem. It will help, but it's a heart issue. If you struggle with seeing things you shouldn't see, getting rid of your cable is not going to solve your problem. It's a heart problem. If, you, if you're having a struggle in your marriage, I've seen a lot of pastors in the last 10 years, dear friends, tap out on their marriages. And I remember uh, with one couple in particular, I could see that their marriage, he's a pastor, he's preaching every Sunday, I could see their marriage getting sideways. And he saw it and he said, we're going to go out on a date once a week and that's going to solve our problem. And they did. They rolled right into a divorce going on a date every Friday night. Because it was not a, it was not a behavior issue that they weren't going on dates. It was a heart issue that they had fallen out of love with Jesus and with one another. Behavior will not change our hearts. Only Jesus can change our hearts. Our heart and our minds drive our behavior. So we have to demolish, we have to demolish this thinking about behavior first. The second thing we do, we take captive every thought. I'm going to give you two things on this one. Number one, we have to begin to catalog and inventory every thought. When I met with Doug in his office... He literally handed me one of those little spiral bound notebooks. And he said, for the next two weeks, he said, you got a lot of messed up thinking. And I just remember like him saying that and I was sitting there in his office and I don't know if this ever happened to you. It's like when someone exposes how hurt you are and how wounded and how sideways you are spiritually, it's like the weight lifts off because you know it's there. And this guy literally lifted a weight, the Holy Spirit lifted a weight off my shoulders from this guy. And so at the end of it, he hands me a little spiral notebook. He says, for the next two weeks, I want you to catalog and inventory your thoughts. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, every time you have a self-destructive thought, a distorted mirror thought, I want you to write it down. He goes, I want you to begin to just write down all your thoughts and let's just see what is in there. Take captive the prisoners now that we're demolishing the stronghold. And man, after two weeks, can I tell you a couple things? There was a lot of bad thoughts and I was really tired. It didn't feel like weeding a little flower bed where you're picking the weeds out and they just pop out. It felt like I was being asked to uproot, uproot the Amazon rainforest. But I needed that. I had to begin to take captive those thoughts and see what was even in my heart and mind. And so if this is your thing, I want to encourage you, catalog your thoughts, catalog your thoughts, your temptations. I want to tell you, temptations are not sins. Our thoughts are not sins. They become sin when we pour water on them and let them take root and go do their thing. Catalog your thoughts. Don't feel condemnation. We need to just see what's in there. And we need to ask, okay, these thoughts, are these things true? Is this true right now, what I'm saying? 
is this thought, ask, is this thought true? Is this thought questioning God? Satan will often speak in question marks. Did God really say that? You don't really believe that, do you? That's not true of your life, is it? Is it true? Does it question God? And does it seem unreasonably urgent? Satan will make you think you got to do it now. Man, my Amazon cart is like a siren song. I have a, I have a, a, a list in, in Amazon, right? I used to have it in my cart. It was, like a, it was like a siren just calling to me, by me, by me. So I had to like take the books I wanted. It's a list of books. And I had to go set them in another, like in a list. So I don't even see them until I mean to see them. Because those books just, I love reading. And those books will just call to me. Come by me. Come by me. And they just seem urgent. You need this now. You have to read this now. You have to know this now. This is how Satan speaks. He lies, he questions, and he makes things urgent. Begin to catalog your thoughts and ask, is this true? Is it a question? Is it unreasonably urgent? Martin Luther uh, said, you cannot stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hair. This is so good. That's actually not the Luther quote. That's my paraphrase of it, but it's pretty close. We need to take captive our thoughts by cataloging our worldviews and our attitudes. And then the second thing Paul says we are to do here is imprison, take them captive, imprison, and then abandon our disobedient thoughts and walk away. Literally take, the, take those thoughts, put them in a prison where Jesus is king over them, lock the prison, throw the key away, and walk away. After two weeks of cataloging my thoughts, I walked into Doug's office. I was like, here's the thoughts. He goes, okay, now here's your next task for two weeks. Every time one of those thoughts begins to pop into your mind, now what I want you to begin to do is literally see yourself putting them in a prison where Jesus is guarding the prison, you taking the key, throwing it in the corner, and walking away. I thought I was tired that first two weeks cataloging the thoughts, I was exhausted after two weeks of throwing thoughts in prison. After two weeks, I felt like I'd barely made a dent. Two more weeks, I felt like I was making some progress. Honestly, after about three months, those self-destructive thoughts were under the authority of King Jesus. They weren't ruling me anymore because I demolished the stronghold and I began to let Christ and, and my, my effort take captive the thoughts. I would visualize it and walk away from it. There's a great quote by Tim Chester. I want to read us up here if we can throw it up there. I don't even have it in my notes. Let's see if Scott can find it. Sorry to put him on the spot. Should be the next one. Nope, not that one. Um, that one. We need, I think this is it. We need to be violent with sin. If we hold back, it's almost certainly because we don't want to be violent towards something we still love. Violent. Throw it in the prison throw the key in the corner and walk away. You have to be nice to sin. You have to be nice to temptation. We take those thoughts captive and then finally we make them obedient to Christ. I want to encourage you, let scripture begin to read you. Let scripture read your thoughts. Let scripture read your ideas. Let scripture read your feelings and your convictions and your tendencies. You know, I was talking about my mom this week. Um, she was talking about how in her lifetime voting patterns have changed. Like I love going to the John F. Kennedy Museum here and seeing how people voted in 1960 and then looking how the voting map has switched. And my mom said, you know, when I was a kid, you definitely voted one way and now you definitely vote the other way. Listen, 
That stuff doesn't matter where we're from or what we think about politically. We vote and we believe about our world based on what Scripture says. We think about our relationships based on what Scripture says. If we're Christians, we think about our money and our spending based on what Scripture says. And we don't see ourselves through a distorted lens like a fun house. We even see ourselves based on what Scripture says. And so the next thing Doug told me to do after having written down a list and beginning to take things captive, he said, now you've got to start memorizing Scripture. And he gave me a list of like 10 verses. John 14, 20, on that day, you'll realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we demolish arguments and every uh, lofty idea of it sets itself up against knowing God and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And, and there were tons of them. It, at first, there were like three the first week and then there were 10 and eventually there were 50 verses. And when something would begin to pop into my head, I would put it in the prison and I would combat it with Scripture. Let Scripture begin to read you, not you reading Scripture. Paul would say, we're going to demolish you Corinthians' wrong beliefs. Let Peter and Paul and David and John and Luke and Mark and Matthew and Isaiah and Moses demolish our wrong way of thinking and begin to shape us. Second thing, it means to make our thoughts obedient to Christ. Focus on what is good and on what is godly. Focus on Christ. I want to tell you, Jesus is better Uh, Natalie's life verses, Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. It's what uh, Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. A new love for Jesus will evict wrong thinking and destructive beliefs. It evicts it. It cannot stay here when Jesus is on the throne. That's why I grew up singing a song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus and the things of world of this world become strangely dim. We don't have to hyperfixate on the negative and the destructive. We hyperfixate on Jesus and him ruling and it makes all those things become those lies, those wrong thinkings become uh, strangely dim. Even to this day, when I'm believing lies, I have to ask, am I looking to Jesus? The longest walk of my week, every week, is when I walk out of 300 Medford Street on Sunday morning at 845 and come here to 10 Green Street. It is this way every Sunday. I would appreciate your prayers on Sunday mornings. From 300 Medford Street to 10 Green Street, the devil comes at me with every single thing he has, saying, they're not going to listen. God's not going to change their hearts. Did God really tell you to preach this sermon? How do you know that this is from the Lord, not from you? This isn't going to matter. The Holy Spirit's not going to show up. Accusation after accusation, urgent statement after urgent statement, question after question, none of it from the Lord. But on that 10-minute walk over, I just have to say, Lord, I'm going to look to you. This morning, I can tell you, I'm walking up Elm Street, between, right at almost High Street. I can see the Boys and Girls Club, and I pray, Lord, I believe you gave me this word today. I'm going to believe you rather than lies. I'm going to believe you rather than urgency. I'm going to believe what you did over the last seven days in my heart and what you've been doing in the last 44 years in my heart is going to be the truth, not what this devil is trying to accuse me of in this moment. 
I'm going to make this thought obedient to Christ. And then the last thing I want to tell you, I want to tell you, you can change and you can be changed. You can change. We can change how we think. We can literally build scientifically different neuropathways around wrong thinking. It takes effort. It is taxing. But our brains are resilient. The greatest computer ever built. And no human will ever make anything like God made the human brain. We can build super highways around our wrong thoughts. This is heart work though. It's not science. It's spiritual work. This requires spiritual weapons. Word, prayer, spirit, church. It can't happen though. We can do it and God will do it. The Lord like riding a tandem bicycle where the Holy Spirit is in the front and we are in the back. The Lord will change our thinking as we ride with him. He will do it. He is faithful. Demolish the stronghold. Take captive the rebel thoughts. Make Jesus the master of our minds and of our hearts. Here's a commitment I would challenge you toward today. My tendency will not determine my destiny. My tendency will not determine my destiny. How I tend to think, how I tend to believe, how I tend to feel is not going to affect my destiny. I am a child of the king. That's going to determine who I am and where I am going. Feast on God's word. If this is a struggle for you, let me encourage you this week to read Ephesians. Read, drink deep of Ephesians, particularly chapter one, if this is a struggle for you. If this is a struggle for you, read Romans this week. It's a little harder, a little longer. Particularly chapter eight. I think chapter eight of Romans is the best chapter in the entire Bible. If this is a struggle for you this week, read Colossians, particularly chapter three. And read the Bible with a journal. Even read a, a study Bible. If you need one, let us know. We'll be glad to buy you one. Drink deep the word of God. It is our weapon. Funhouse mirrors are fun for a few minutes. They are no way to see the world. No way to see the world. But what if we began to take our thoughts captive and our minds captive and our beliefs captive and our feelings captive and our attitudes captive when we saw ourselves and others and the world properly and, we, and, and then what about this? What if we spoke powerfully to one another because we were beginning to see as God sees. How would our church be different if we look, like showed up and we're thinking and believing properly and we can speak to one another with power and we can speak into our community and we can speak into our world and say, we're different people. We see the world different. We're not saying this with arrogance, but that's, dis that's distorted thinking. And the Lord has set us free so that we don't have to think like that and we don't have to believe like that. I think this week has been a powerful opportunity um, to think well. I've talked with pastors this week who have been discouraged. I've talked with people this week who are talking about all different manner of things with current events, economics, uh, gun control, schools, mental health, all of these things. And listen, the ability to say, my thinking is built not on how I feel, or even what I think or how I've been raised. My thinking is built on the word of God is the most liberating, freeing thing in the world. Let me pray for us.